it's a brave testimony to be able to come out and actually say that. <clears throat> Let me just, you got to give me a minute here. I'm trying something a little bit different. Uh, this morning I'm going to try and see if I can actually <clears throat> negotiate the, the uh, uh, ability to do this via computer. Um, I don't know if most of you know that I have legendarily pro-cro-magnet skills <clears throat> in computer. Can you get an amen? <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows that I'm constantly trying to figure out, okay, what am I doing wrong? So, no, I'm good. I figured I just got to start at some point because it's I've got mountains and mountains of paper, and plus I've also I've, I've got a paperback up in case I need it. So I'm, I'm good. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, I just again I thank you for uh, again the testimony that we heard today, and I thank you for the truth of that testimony. Uh, Lord, it's it's uh, incredible that. Uh, uh, all of the struggles that we are, are in are building up for us an eternal weight of glory, and we just praise you and thank you for that. Uh, we just think today, Lord, of, of just the gifts that you give us. Uh, number one is, is a life with meaning, and that's so incredibly important and so incredibly uh, blessed to have. And so I, I pray today, Lord, as we kind of go through a catalog of the gifts that you've given us, uh, in addition to a life with meaning, you've given us your word, you've given us uh, the Bible that we can uh, turn to and, and grow from. And, and you've given us the presence of your Holy Spirit, and that too is something that we so greatly appreciate. And so, again, we pray this morning that we would have the presence of your Spirit, that you would guide us as we go through your Word, and that you would give us the ability to make it of permanent value. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, as you know, we've been looking at, at, at God's wisdom in Solomon's life. And you know, Solomon is the richest the wisest, the most powerful man of his day. And he puts all of his wisdom into this task of finding meaning in life under the sun. And by that he means literally life outside of God. Solomon has much to tell us about a life with meaning because he spent much of his life pursuing meaningless things. In Ecclesiastes 1.13 he said, And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And then verse, two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. And we've been looking at one major category of vain and empty things that Solomon kind of gives this large title to pleasure. And pleasure includes laughter, includes wine, it includes folly, amusement, and sex. And so far we've looked at laughter and wine and folly. And we've seen that Solomon saw that laughter was, was foolish because the laughter he was speaking of was not the healthy laughter of a good joke, but rather the laughter of cynicism. We've also seen that, that, that wine and folly can destroy, can de degrade, and can distract us from a life with meaning. And it's not that wine is in itself evil, because it's not. I mean, the evil lies in pushing good things to bad ends. And this is especially true of the topic that we're going to be looking at this morning, and that is amusements. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 3, and it says this. It says, I said in my mind, come now, 
I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Now, the part that we're going to look at, we're going to focus in on that one little section there. The, the amusement part is in verse 8. Solomon says, I got singers, both men and women. I mean, Solomon speaks of acquiring men and women singers to entertain and amuse, but then he concedes that that exercise was useless, and he says this, but whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so once again, after a lengthy examination, Solomon concludes that amusement, even for a man of his incredible resources, it was meaningless. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You know, Solomon had no idea how amusement itself would explode meaning itself into pieces in our day. I mean, Solomon, with all of his wealth, with all of his power, he couldn't come close to the amusement options that a middle-class child has in our culture in our time. I mean, think about it. Solomon only had live entertainment. Quote, I got singers, both men and women. He couldn't begin to compare with what we have today to amuse ourselves. I mean, Solomon had singers. What do we have? Well, PlayStation, virtual reality, text messaging, cable, laptops, tablets, cell phones, blogs, Netflix, TikTok, Twitter. Need I go on? You see, never in history has a culture been more obsessed with amusement than ours. Um, you know, Rome had its bread and circus. Rome had its entertainment. It had its free food. It had its gladiators to amuse its citizens in its last days. And, and we have been richly entertained as we approach our last days. Rome only had live entertainment. You know, I, I can pop on Netflix and watch Gladiator and High Def and five-channel Dolby Stereo anytime I want to. And so the question is, 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 that, is that a bad thing? I mean, is the Bible against the very concept of amusement? Well, I, I guess the answer to that is that depends. I mean, the devices that I mentioned, they're just that. They're devices. They're morally neutral. I mean, a PlayStation can play Bible blasters or it can play Grand Theft Auto. A laptop can display a Bible study video or it can display rank pornography. See, the morality is not determined by the device but by its end use. But what about the idea? What about, what about the idea of amusement itself? Well, you know, Solomon said it too was vanity. 
And even the word suggests meaninglessness. You know, if you put the prefix a before a word, it means to negate it. You know, a, a theist is somebody who believes in God. And a theist is someone who doesn't believe in God. And you look at muse. Muse means intellect. It means mind. It means thought. If you add an a as a prefix, you get a muse. And what does that mean? It means literally to negate and turn off one's mind. Now, again, is that wrong? And I said, again, the answer, I think, is that depends. You see, from the very beginning, God granted Sabbaths as periods of rest and restoration, but he granted it to a culture that was largely committed to the hard labor of agriculture. But you know, hard physical labor isn't the only thing that requires rest. I mean, we need rest in every area of life, including our minds. I mean, I, I can testify that the hardest part of preparing a sermon is really the thinking part. You know, sometimes I feel like I got smoke coming out of my ears. Make no mistake about it, thinking is very hard work and it's something that we don't like to do unless we have to. And instead of using the muse that God has given us, we often choose to amuse ourselves instead. And whether it's right or wrong is really a matter of degree. You know, 20 years ago, Neil Postman wrote an incredibly prophetic book about that. It was entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in the introduction, Postman compared two different visions of the future. On the one hand, there was the dark political oppression of George Orwell's 1984, which most of you are familiar with. It's where the government controls everything. And he compared that to Brave New World, Aldous Huxley's novel where pleasure and autonomy rules and all that matters is me, myself, and I. And Postman foresaw a showdown between Orwell's vision of a government-controlled future and Huxley's, where pleasure is what rules. And this is what Postman wrote in the introduction to his book. He said, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with an equivalent of the feelings. And so in 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. He said, in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And so Postman says in the book, he says, this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right, and Huxley was exactly right. This is a brave new world, and much of it stems from our relationship to amusement. And so we say, well, what does scripture have to say about amusement in 21st century America? I mean, Solomon in his day said it too was ultimately meaningless, but how can a book that's thousands of years old give us guidance today on how we are supposed to handle amusement? <clears throat> well, once again, I, I, I'm drawn back to Hebrews 12, which I spoke of last week, which, which gives us a clear-cut mandate 
This is Hebrews 12.1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And let me add, or overly amused. And so it says, first, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and the cross, remembering that glorifying his Father by rescuing the sheep was the joy that Jesus willingly died for. Because that's the source, that's the substance of our lives. And secondly, let us throw off everything that hinders and entangles that vision. I mean, I, I can think of at least three areas in which amusement wreaks havoc on that vision. One is in our communication with God. Another is, is our convictions about God. And yet another is our commitment to God. So let's first take a look at our communication with God. A simple question. How, how do we communicate with God? Well, I hope you gave the same answer as everybody does. I, the answer is prayer. And you know, I, I've said it many, many times. I, and people disagree. I, I, I say prayer is hard work. I think prayer is possibly the hardest work that we do. I mean, I, I've often said if we ask for volunteers to scrub the toilets with toothbrushes for two hours or spend two hours in solid prayer, what do you think people would pick? If they were honest, I don't think it would be prayer. And one of the reasons why prayer is so difficult is because it's one of the few things that the devil truly, truly fears. It's one of the only things that he does whatever he can to stop. And God tells us two things about prayer in Romans 8. Number one, he says we stink at it. So we're awful at it. And that he knows that we stink at it. But he cares so much that, about, that we pray that he sends his Holy Spirit specifically to help us knowing that we stink at it. Listen to how he puts it. He puts it a little more elegantly in Romans 8.26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, I've said it before. I said there's, there's three things that you really need for your prayers to be effective. You need stillness. You need solitude. And you also need a schedule. And I realize these, these, these are not carved in stone. You can pray anywhere. You can pray anytime. But by and large, prayer needs stillness. It needs solitude to be effective. And that's not just my opinion. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16. He said, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So my question is, do you ever do that? I mean, do you ever get absolutely alone with God? Do you ever find a, a specific place of silence to pray? Or does silence just kind of creep you out? 
I mean, ever notice how addicted we've become to amusing the silence and solitude out of our lives? I mean, how many times do we walk into a room and flip on the TV or the radio or throw on Spotify? Anything to fill in the silence. How many times do we get in the car and just pop on the noise? I mean, have you noticed that everywhere we go, we are accompanied by a wall of sound? I mean, one of the things that I used to enjoy about going to Planet Fitness was that nobody noticed anybody else. I mean, you could sit, you'd walk into that place, work out, and not worry about people staring at you. And then I, I realized the reason why is that virtually everybody in there is tethered to some kind of electronic device that's pumping music into their heads. I mean, nobody's speaking to anybody else because everybody's enveloped in their own little world as defined by their earbuds. Now, I mean, the question is, is that wrong? Well, I would say it's unfortunate rather than wrong. Because people are not only cut off from God, they're cut off from each other. And the noise that makes it almost impossible to hear God speak something that oftentimes requires stillness and silence. I look at Psalm 46 and it says, be still and know that I'm God. Psalm 37 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And we all recall God speaking to the prophet Elijah in a what? A still, small voice. And so we ask, are we not telling God by surrounding ourselves with oceans of noise that if he has anything to say to us, he better shout it. I mean, our addiction to amusement can hinder or entangle our communication with God. I mean, the silence that once was an integral part of, of life before electricity is now, it's so non-existent in our lives that, that we find it completely unnerving when we encounter it. And could it be that we are unnerved by even the possibility of encountering God in that silence? And that we use this wall of sound to shut him out? You know, next time you stumble on, on silence, just stop for a moment. See if you can catch yourself uh, flipping a switch to fill up the silence with noise. And when you do, just stop for a second and say these words. Say, hi, God, it's me. I mean, you just might find that you haven't really spoken to God for quite a while. And you may also find that the silence now takes getting used to. I mean, I, I, I love silence because I know God inhabits it. It's one of the reasons if I'm walking without Janice, I'll never walk with earbuds. I don't want to waste my time. And so if you're in a car alone, just try leaving off all of the noise and just talk to God. You may be very pleasantly surprised. And the next area in which amusement hinders us is in the area of our convictions about God. I mean, amusement can hinder how we know and understand doctrine. I mean, do you know who and what you believe? I believe in Jesus. Well, so do Mormons, so do Jehovah's Witnesses, so do Christian scientists. At least they all say they do, but all three groups deny that Jesus Christ was fully God incarnate. Now, do you know how or, or why they deny it? And does it matter whether or not you know? 
Well, it mattered to the Apostle Paul. This is what he said in Galatians 1.6. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you perceived, let him be accursed. We have a problem with that, and the problem is we don't know what the gospel is unless we know and understand doctrine. In a culture that worships amusement, in that culture, doctrine becomes a dirty word. It's just like Paul predicted in 2 Timothy. This is what he said. He said, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What does amusement have to do with doctrine? Well, let's look at the number one source of amusement for everybody. Let's look at television and its effect on doctrine. Now, Neil Postman describes how technology fundamentally alters a society. He said, put printing presses into 15th century Europe, and 50 years later, you don't have Europe plus printing presses. You have an entirely different Europe. I mean, everything has changed, the political system, the cultural system, the religious system, and so on. In 1946, television entered into America. It's now 76 years later. And that's not America plus TV. Instead, it's a vastly different America. I mean, our politics, our culture, our education, our religion, and yes, our doctrine has been fundamentally changed by television. Now, we've gone from an oral tradition to a written tradition and now to a televisual tradition. And the problem is the, the ideas that are more complex than, than cartoons and sports, those ideas are not served well by television. I mean, today we often speak about bandwidth. Bandwidth is the ability of a medium to carry information. I mean, if you remember at the very beginning that squawky, weird noise with the dial-up, everybody trying to get into the Internet, and then we switched from, from that to, to cable because cable had a much broader bandwidth. It was able to carry much more information. Well, Neil Postman says, imagine, imagine trying to carry on a philosophical discussion via smoke signals. There's not enough bandwidth. You can't do it. There's not enough information in smoke signals. Well, TV has the exact same problem. You see, you can't pause like you can in a conversation. You can't reflect like you can in a discussion or, or an argument. You can't review like you can in a book. Everything has an immediate span of about three seconds, which is how long the average TV image lasts. And the result is TV has no place for, for pause or reflection or review or, or restatements. I mean, make no mistake, it's great for sports because it really can only show you the, the right now that sports consists of. But it's terrible for anything that requires thought and reflection like ideas or philosophy or faith or doctrine. Those ideas get reduced to sound bites by television. 
And since we've been raised on those sound bites for, for literally 60 years now, I mean, literally, we have that many, that much time that we've spent just sucking away at the TV. We've lost the appetite to have any other forms of, of mental nourishment. And the core values of Christian faith, like regeneration, justification, and sanctification, they're too rich, they're too complex for television. But television has shaped our appetite so that learning those ideas are no longer attractive compared with amusements. And the result is, is this profound ignorance of what is basic Christianity. Now, let me give you just one practical example. It has to do with the program The Chosen, which you know I, I really enjoy, I really love. But The Chosen at one point opened up a Pandora's box when it applied for and received permission to film on a location that was custom built by the Mormon church to resemble a city in ancient Israel. Now, the decision brought up all kinds of conversations about whether evangelical Christians should have anything to do with the Mormon church, including using their set to film The Chosen. Well, you have to understand something about Mormons in the first place. You have to understand that, that, that Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan were at one time brothers. They, they believe that both were sons of God and that Jesus agreed to God's plan and Satan didn't. They believe that Jesus was not eternally co-equal with the Father and that he progressively learned how to become a God. They believe that only after his resurrection did he fully become God. They also believe that we have the exact same capacity to become gods just like Jesus did. Well, that's not orthodox Christianity. I mean, their ideas of regeneration, justification, and sanctification as a Mormon put them way, way off the reservation when it comes to Christian convictions. And look, we all know that Mormons are, are decent, clean, living, lovely people. But that doesn't make them Christians. John 3 says, whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I mean, believing in the Son means I believe that he was very God in the flesh, come down to earth to pay the penalty of death that my sin deserved. I mean, it's a belief that the one who gave us life for mine is the one worthy to be loved, honored, and obeyed. That's what doctrine is. And doctrinally, you can be a a Mormon, and you can be a Christian, but you can't be both. And doctrine is crucial to faith. I mean, regeneration tells me that only the Holy Spirit can open up my spiritually dead heart to even understand what it means to give my life to Christ. And justification means that Jesus has finished his work on the cross, has paid the debt of my sin, and that I now stand before God as a perfected, adopted son, and sanctification tells me that God causes all things to work together in my life for, for the purpose of shaping and molding me into the very image of Jesus Christ. And these are all doctrinal issues. I mean, these are convictions that are crucial to understanding the gospel. But they're no longer fully grasped by vast majorities of so-called Christians. Quote, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I think you can thank the idea of amusement for getting us to this point. And God says sound teaching is the responsibility of all of his people. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, put in your hearts, put in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And so that becomes the question. Can you give someone that kind of an account? Very important question. Now, I've, I've often, oftentimes quoted Sam Harris. He wrote a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Sam Harris is a militant atheist. He's appalled that our culture even tolerates Christianity. He, he wants the teaching of doctrine to children to be forbidden because in his mind it is vile and filthy. He thinks it borders on child abuse to uh, tell children about the Bible. Well, his book and his movement have grown very popular, and a Christian culture addicted to amusement doesn't really know how to answer him. Sam Harris wants to know where God was during our worst natural disasters. He wants to know where, where, where was God during the tsunami and during Hurricane Katrina. Well, our answers as Christians involve doctrine. In this case, it's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I mean, we say that God was on his throne, that God was in charge, God was responsible for both the tsunami and Katrina. And we acknowledge that as God who said in Isaiah 4, he said, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. That's quite an admission. But, but I'd be the first one to tell you, I, I don't know why God allows such devastation for believers and non-believers alike. But I, I do know that if God had a separate set of rules for believers and unbelievers, all of us would be believers because we'd see a great advantage in that. And that's why folks used to offer sacrifices to the gods. It wasn't out of love. It was to curry favor. But as a Christian, I already know that I have the love of God. I, I know that this same God demonstrated his love for us by becoming one of us, living a perfect life, and then offering himself as a substitute for us on a Roman cross. And so therefore, I trust what I don't know about tsunamis and Katrina to what I do know about the cross of Christ. You know, Sam Harris is a materialist, naturalist, atheistic evolutionist. In some ways, he basically represents the modern equivalent of Solomon in his quest to understand life under the sun. I mean, understanding life without any influence of God whatsoever. And whereas Solomon was brought to absolute despair by the meaninglessness of life, the Sam Harrises of the world, they still demand answers from a God that they claim doesn't even exist. I mean, according to Sam, we're just a bag of chemicals that got put here by time and chance. Lots and lots of time. I mean, if that's true, why complain to God or me or anyone else about, about anything? I mean, stuff happens. And it happens by time and chance alone. And when it happens, it just happens. It's not good. It's not, it's not bad. It just is. I mean, isn't that Sam Harris's actual position? See, you can't complain to a God who doesn't exist that he doesn't perform the way you like. I mean, if Sam really believes what he says he believes, then a tsunami or a Katrina, they're just moral non-events. I mean, if some people die, so what? It's no different than when a spring storm wipes out a flock of birds or, or a red tide destroys a school of fish. I mean, a bird, a fish, a person, we're all just accidents of time and chance. We're all just bags of chemicals, according to Sam. So what is the big deal? 
least we Christians have a God to pour out our sorrow to. I mean, Sam's got no one but Sam. However, the reason why Sam and his ilk are growing in popularity is because Christians are not prepared to give an account that challenges that atheism. And we're not prepared because we don't read. And we're sure not going to get these answers on television. I mean, it's true what Neil Postman says. We are amusing ourselves to death. Amusement can hinder and entangle our communication with God by, by driving out the stillness and solitude that God speaks in. It can also hinder and entangle our convictions about God by reducing our faith and our doctrine to sound bites and cartoons. You know, John MacArthur once lamented the fact that, in his opinion, he says sermons have become sermonettes. And as he put it, sermonettes have the habit of producing Christianettes. You know, real sermons take work to produce and they take work to listen to. Amusement can destroy our communication with God, our convictions about God, and finally, amusement can hinder and entangle our commitment to God. Ephesians 5 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Did you know that the average person, by the time he's 60 years old, has spent more than 10 full years of his life in front of a TV? That's 10 years spent 24, 7, 365. I mean, literally the whole day for 10 years, sitting in front of a television. Just do the math. I mean, the average person watches about four hours of TV per day. That's one-sixth of a day. One-sixth of 60 years is 10 years spent just amusing ourselves. Now, passively watching glowing dots on a screen. Now, I once heard a man describe what it was like. He was going door to door. He was in a high-rise apartment. He was taking surveys, and he said he knocked on hundreds and hundreds of apartments, and he said everyone was the same. He said, in every one, I'd walk into a dark room with a flickering image, and people were all sitting around that image. And he said, at first, he pictured, well, there was dozens, and then he thought there's, there was hundreds, and then he thought, no, there's not hundreds, there's thousands, and then he thought, no, there's tens of millions of us all doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. He said, we were all amusing ourselves to death every night in the exact same way. 10 to 15 full years of our life spent watching TV. Now, if we're going to give an account of every single idle word we ever speak, how are we going to give an account for 88,000 hours of TV watching? And what's so amazing is that, is that because TV is televisual, it's not spoken, it's not written, we forgot almost 99% of what it is we watched. And that's probably a good thing because the vast majority of TV programming is anti-God. It's certainly anti-Bible. Philippians 4 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, just, just imagine if that was a permanent crawl that went across the bottom of all of our believers' TV screens all the time. Now, would we or could we still watch TV the way we watch it? 
You see, amusement has, has stolen the silence and the solitude that God speaks in. It has so dumbed down our thinking that it has stolen our ability to understand what makes Christians Christians. And its subtle and unrelenting attack on God and his kingdom has made the hours we give to it overwhelmingly unredeemable. I mean, the quantity of time we give it is enormous. The quality of the product that it gives us is often revolting. And worse yet, it's steadily deteriorating. I mean, what was unthinkable 10 years ago is commonplace today. And the pressure to push the envelope is unrelenting. I mean, I can give you tons of examples, but you all got TVs, you know. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So what do we do? Well, one communication professor made her class go on what she called an e-fast. That was one whole day with no electronic media whatsoever. If you had one slip-up, you had to start all over again. And she made a student, students write a paper about their experiences. Some described it as the worst day of my life. Others described it as the best experience I've ever had. No one treated the assignment as insignificant, which just goes to show how important amusement has become to us. It just shows us how much of the media rat race we are part of. For many of us, amusement has gone from a change of pace to a way of life, and we don't even realize it. I mean, a media fast might seem like a drastic solution to some, but there, there are plenty of other steps that we can take to break the hold that amusement has on us. You know, you can cut your TV time by one-seventh by simply coming to the Wednesday evening prayer meeting. Hint. I mean, I, I look back, I've been doing that for about 40 years now. I, I look back at that time with pleasure, and then I thought, well, that's 4,000 hours that, that, that I can bank on my end, not on the other end. 4,000 hours that TV wasn't able to steal from me. Now, you can also vary your media. You can change from TV to radio or even to Christian radio. You can read a novel or a nonfiction book. You could join a Bible study. Again, hint, hint. This is a big one. You can change your schedule. You can change your schedule so that you eliminate a lot, a lot of TV watching time altogether. I remember reading about R.C. Sproul. He said he changed his schedule so that he went to bed at 9 o'clock and got up at 5 a.m. He said it gave him a whole new lease on life. And finally, you can decide if you still want to watch TV, make it a choice, not a lifestyle. And like I said, I, I like to watch Planet Earth. I find out when it's on, I watch it, then I turn it off or I DVR it. I mean, don't just flop down to see what's on the boob tube. Choose only what you want to watch and watch only what you choose. See, you can change your amusement habits. Now, Neil Postman died in 2003. I, I don't know where he was spiritually, but I do know that he was absolutely right in his premise. Christian and non-Christian alike, we are amusing ourselves to death. And I'll be the first one to say, if you're outside the kingdom, it certainly makes sense. I mean, we've seen in this series so far that, that all the pleasures that Solomon embraced are all distractions from the ultimate meaninglessness of life. But that doesn't have to be the case with us. Because we have the ultimate answer to the meaninglessness of life. We have the word, we have the logos, <clears throat> we have the logic that Christ alone can give us. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, God, was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. 
and the life was the light of men. And it goes on to say, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, in Christ we know who we are, we know where we are headed, and we know why we're here. I mean, the answer to the vanity of Solomon's life is Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And all of what Solomon is saying is summed up in his final words in Ecclesiastes. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, aim your life at God and his kingdom, and you'll never regret the race that you've embarked on. Solomon had the greatest wealth, the greatest influence, the greatest power his world ever knew, but he didn't have a fraction of the choices that we have to amuse ourselves. And the result is that Hebrews 12.1 has become a much more urgent cry and much more demanding today. And whether it's communication with God that's compromised due to a lack of silence and solitude or, or convictions about God that are rooted now in sound bites and sermonettes, or a commitment to God to study and grow and share the gospel that gets swallowed by TV. God says it all in Hebrews 12.1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So let's stop amusing ourselves to death, and let's start running the race that God intends for us. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your gifts, your grace, your book. Lord, your warning. It's so easy to be amused. It's so easy to get caught up in what is essentially meaningless. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give all the grace, strength, peace, power, and wisdom that we need to be able to start moving away from this culture of amusement to a culture that really values the things that matter, the things that will last. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.